0: Welcome to episode 10 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you tell me which of the over 800 movies I own but have never seen I will be watching next. This month we are looking at Bram Stoker's Dracula. This was released on November 13th, 1992. I don't know why they couldn't get it out just two weeks earlier and hit Halloween, but that's beside the point. I picked this one up because I like to compare versions Of movies when there's multiple films adapted from the same source, and there are very few source materials that have been adapted as often as Bram Stoker's Dracula. I hadn't gotten around to it because even though I like to compare different versions and enjoy the novel, I am generally speaking not all that much of a horror fan, so it just took a while for me to get around to it. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who's best known for his work directing the Godfather trilogy and Apocalypse Now. The writing credits go to Bram Stoker for the novel, although he had no part in the production of the film, most likely because he'd been dead for decades. The screenplay was written by James V. Hart. Hart also wrote Hook, Epic, Contact, and Muppet Treasure Island, among others. The cast includes Gary Oldman as Dracula. He's probably best known for playing Commissioner Gordon in the three Chris Nolan Batman films for playing Stansfield in Léon the Professional. He was also the primary villain in The Fifth Element. He was in Air Force One in the Lost in Space film adaptation. He's Sirius Black in the Harry Potter movies. He's got 92 acting credits, but he's a little bit of a chameleon, and some of them it's hard to recognize him, because he really does carry himself completely differently from role to role. Mina Marie, later Mina Harker and Elizabeth were played by Winona Ryder. She was probably best known at this point for her work in Edward Scissorhands, but today she's also known for her work in Girl Interrupted in Black Swan. She plays Amanda Grayson in the 2009 Star Trek reboot, as well as work in A Scanner Darkly and many more. 61 acting credits to her name. Now Anthony Hopkins, who's probably best known for playing Hannibal Lecter in Red Dragon, in Hannibal, and in Silence of the Lambs, Who's also in The Elephant Man? He's Odin in the Marvel Thor movies, and so forth. He's in here as Professor Abraham Van Helsing. The same year, he was also in Howard's End, and that's one of the other movies that really cleaned up at the Oscars. He even played Sir John Talbot in the 2010 remake of The Wolfman 131 acting credits to his name. Jonathan Harker is played by Keanu Reeves. Now, this is Keanu Reeves coming off of the Bill and Ted movies. But before Speed, John Wick, The Matrix, The Devil's Advocate, so he was not nearly the name that he was going to become, even though his acting credits do go back to 1984. He's got 93 credits to his name. We also have Richard E. Grant. He was Dr. Rice and Logan, he was Barkus Bittern in the Corpse Bride, he was in Penelope. But I'm gonna go out on the limb and say that most Bureau 42 readers and podcast listeners know him primarily as the Great Intelligence and Dr. Simeon from the Doctor Who series, particularly the latest reboot. He was also the temporarily official Ninth Doctor in Scream of the Shalka, an online animated film which has been since re-released on DVD, but which was pushed out of canon when Russell T. Davies got permission to reboot Doctor Who as live action. He's got 121 credits to his name. Now, another actor who is very well known now, but was not quite as well known then, is Carrie Elwes. His best known role did predate this, and that's for playing Wesley in The Princess Bride. Since then, he's been in Saw, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Liar, Liar, Psych, and who knows how many more. 117 acting credits to his name. Now, we've also got Billy Campbell, who to me will always be Cliff in The Rocketeer, which came out the year prior to this. Some of our readers on Bureau 42 will always think of him as the Outrageous O'Connor from the Star Trek Next Generation episode of that name, but he's also got over 70 acting credits behind him. This movie also introduces Sadie Frost, who now has 51 IMDb credits to her name. This is what she's best known for, in which she played Lucy Westerna. She's also in Love, Honor, and Obey, Shopping, and Uprising. Now, Tom Waits plays Renfield. He's actually best known as a musician. He's got 176 soundtrack credits, and that's what he's best known for, having his music in movies like Fight Club and 12 Monkeys. As an actor, he's also appeared on The Simpsons. He was Doc Heller in Mystery Man. He was The Wanderer in Domino. He had a bit of a cameo in The Fisher King the year prior to this. He was in The Outsiders and Rumblefish and Cotton Club, also directed by Coppola. The last notable cast member is Monica Bellucci. She is one of the three Brides of Dracula and the only one who's ever had credits as anything other than a Bride of Dracula, at least as an actress. One of the other ones was also a carpenter on one film. She now has 69 acting credits to her name, is best known for Irreversible, for the second and third Matrix movies, and for playing Lucia in Spectre. In terms of other cast and crew, notable ones include Alko Ishioka. Who was originally hired as a production designer, but when Coppola saw her sketches for costumes, he insisted that she work as the costume designer instead. She took home the Academy Award for that. Tom C. McCarthy and David E. Stone shared the Oscar for the Best Sound Effects editing. Greg Cannon, Michelle Burke, and Matthew W. Mungle won for Best Makeup. And Thomas E. Sanders and Garrett Lewis were nominated for Best Set Direction, but they lost to Howard's End. As far as the conception and inspiration for this film goes, it's very loosely based on the stories of Vlad Tepestrakul, aka Vlad the Impaler, who lived in the 15th century. He got his nickname by impaling just about anyone who angered him. He was a Romanian prince and often the ruler of the country, so he could get away with that. Although, when Stoker wrote this, he had only one piece of source material on the history of Wallachia and Romania, and it had very little about Vlad himself. So it is very loosely based on Vlad Tepes cuz all he really had was the reputation and not a lot of hard facts just reputation for being a very cruel man as far as the inspiration for the film goes this story has been adapted many times in this case Winona Ryder enjoyed the original story and wanted to be a part of it and she knew that there was an unproduced script for the TV series that was good quality that she'd read and seen during another project so when Francis Ford Coppola reached out to her to plan a project that they wanted to do together, she suggested this, and he agreed to do it. Now, this adaptation changes Vlad's history. Instead of being a Romanian prince in the 15th century, he is a soldier during their crusades in the 11th century, and false reports of his death cause his lover to commit suicide, which caused him to become angry at the god that he was fighting for, and he strikes out against the church and the symbols and is cursed, and that's how he became a vampire. So. Tying in Mina Murray to Dracul's life before becoming a vampire and giving the origin for Vlad becoming a vampire in the first place were both elements that were added for this adaptation. This adaptation also leans much more heavily into the eroticism than previous adaptations did. Most of the content of Stoker's novel is here, but those other scenes were added in and around it, which changes the tone a bit. Reading Stoker's novel, I never really got the feeling... That Dracula considered his vampire nature to be a curse, but the Gary Oldman rendition here absolutely does. Other than that, it is still the same in the broad strokes. Jonathan Harker is tasked to make a real estate deal with the Count from overseas, and the Count manages to influence all those he encounters. Van Helsing recognizes him for what he is and leads the charge and the plans to destroy Dracula, though not soon enough to save all of his intended victims. The production looks great. The Oscar wins and nominations are very well deserved. Coppola also insisted on using physical effects rather than digital, which means the actors are always able to see what they're supposed to be reacting to, and the low-quality digital effects that were available in 1992 don't detract from the film at all, watching it 25 years later. now This is a challenge, because the effects houses that Coppola originally hired said it just couldn't be done without digital, so he fired them all and hired his son Roman Coppola to do the job instead. Now that's his son Roman, not to be confused with his nephew Nicholas Coppola, who renamed himself Nicholas Cage after his favourite comic book character Luke Cage, so that he'd have to make it on his own and not follow on his uncle's name. Also not to be confused with his daughter Sophia Coppola, who's directed Lost in Translation and many others. The effects themselves are done with a specific idea in mind. Some of them are, you know, for example, shining a map on the face of Jonathan Harker to Show what he's thinking and tell the audience where he's going. Other things are just because he had the idea that the laws of physics don't work when a creature like Dracula is around. So you get things like shadows that don't match what the actor is doing and so forth. It is very well made in general. The weak link is probably Keanu Reeves' acting performance, which Reeves openly admits isn't what it should be, which he attributes to being early enough in his career that he didn't feel comfortable saying no to projects so he'd been working non-stop for too long, and since he just had nothing left to give. And interestingly, he wasn't Coppola's first choice for the role. Coppola wanted to cast Johnny Depp, but the studio wanted someone who was more of a heartthrob, so they had Reeves instead. So as an adaptation, it is pretty good. It is enjoyable. I personally still prefer the 1931 version with Bela Lugosi, or even the 1922 illegal adaptation Nosferatu which was almost destroyed because it lost a copyright violation suit. As far as how this one was received by audiences, right now it's got an average score of 7.5 out of 10 on the IMDb, which is pretty good. The estimated budget is $40 million US. So, using the same rule of thumb of having to bring in two to three times its budget to make a profit. We're looking at bringing in about $80 million domestically, or about $120 million if we're looking at worldwide numbers to see if it's profitable. The domestic gross ended up at $82,522,790. So it was quite likely profitable just in the domestic end. The final international box office was $133,339,902. So the total worldwide gross was $215,862,692, or about five times its budget. So this was not only profitable, it was in fact so profitable that it saved Coppola's private production company from bankruptcy. In any event, that's about all we have to say about Dracula. Uh, Join us again next month when we look at Terminator Salvation, the only Terminator film that I've never seen. I also suggested revoting a while ago and rearranging the votes. I have decided I am going to be organizing new voting pages organized by genre rather than year. I would also appreciate feedback because I'm debating adding in movies that I have seen but have never podcasted about although votes for those films won't be counted as heavily as those for movies which I haven't seen, simply because a huge amount of the movies that I haven't seen but I own are pretty terrible, things that were in 50 movies for $10 box sets and that sort of thing. I will also be excluding movies that fit into with the content of three other podcast series that I've got plans to do, one of which I've already started recording and will premiere in December of 2019. And there is one Roman Polanski film, That I accidentally bought this part of a larger box set. That will not be included in this or any podcast series I do as long as the man's alive. I refuse to support his work. If you'd like to know why that is and don't already know about Roman Polanski, there's a Wikipedia page devoted entirely to this. Suffice it to say, if you ask someone whether or not a creator's personal conduct should influence whether or not you consume the media that they create, if you'll feel that no, it never should. You can expect to enjoy Polanski's work because he is a talented filmmaker. If you say that, yes, it should influence whether or not you consume their media, or sometimes it depends on the situation, then I guarantee you, you will not watch anything by Polanski if you know what he has done. Anyway, so feedback on whether or not I should include movies I own and have seen but have never podcasted about, or whether they should be excluded and keep it exclusively with movies I've never seen. You can send that feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.